This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. <laughs> well, good evening, everyone. Um, it's my great privilege to introduce Jim Heyman, television producer, director, photographer, and alum of UCSB. Um, and actually a graduate in the film studies program here um, from the 1970s. We're both grads from the 70s from here. Um, so I, th- I really want to begin by asking Jim, we'll turn to the episode soon and to The Sopranos, but uh, uh, to situate it within his larger education and career. So to begin, um, I was hoping you could tell us more about your career and how your studies uh, here set you up for your subsequent work in film and television and photography. Uh, Okay. Uh, I came to UCSB as a junior. I had been studying on the East Coast at American University, and I was a photojournalism major. And then in my sophomore year there, I took my first film class, and I just fell in love with movies. I actually realized that I had always been in love with movies. My... I grew up in New Jersey. My mother was an insomniac, mm. and she watched old black and white movies all night, and she always wanted a partner. So as a kid, that's what I would do. So, so I took this film course, and I was, for other re- just for geographic reasons, wanted to change. So I thought about coming to California to study film. Uh, I like the idea of a communal uh, art as opposed to photography, which is more individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wasn't ready to go to UCLA and, and really take a business approach. And the film studies department was literally just starting. And uh, to be honest, a kid from New Jersey who has an opportunity to come to a school that's on the ocean and watch movies all day. I was like, yeah, let's do that. You know, uh, But... What this department did for me, in, because that's all we did. We watched movies. We talked about movies. Uh, one fellow classmate and I actually started making movies here. It taught me uh, the language of movies. It taught me how a camera uh, tells a story, how it does more than tell a story, how it is another character that interprets the story. It showed me how music can make you gasp in one scene and cry in another, or uh, editing, you know, how the juxtaposition of images create a story. And, and it, it gave me my basis, my foundation of understanding the craft that I, when I went forward and went to graduate school and then eventually started working in the business, I would always go back to those movies that I saw. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd get a gig, and I would go through that Rolodex of old movies and say, all right, well, what about this style or that style? It's always served me. Yeah. Since being here. Well, I read somewhere that, um, of course, you said you were interested initially in, in photojournalism, and I, I read somewhere in the, your materials that um, your first assignment after your second year at American University was to photograph Nixon and Brezhnev at uh, the 1973 Washington Summit at, in the White House Rose Garden. Can you tell us more about that assignment and how it shaped your future journalistic um, and independent work, including coming to UCSB? Sure. Uh, so it was my first job as a photographer. 
you know, for, wow. I've been, I'd been shooting for, since I was maybe 16. Uh, but I, all, I was very much into street photography, into just observing and capturing human moments, you know. But I had this, now I had a job, I had to go actually do it. And uh, it was July in Washington, D.C., so it was about 100 degrees and 100% humidity. Yeah. And I had to wear a shirt and a jacket and tie, and the only jacket I had was corduroy. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to this, and I was so excited, and it was a shark frenzy. It was just this gaggle of photographers, everyone sort of fighting to get the shot. And, and I did. I got the shot. But it was not at all what I imagined my life as a photographer uh, would be. You know, I imagined myself being a street photographer, being an art photographer. And, uh, and so I think that coupled uh, with the film class that I took, what was the film class? Do you remember? It was like an intro to yeah. American film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mostly uh, movies of the 30s, as I recall, but like sort of the classic intro class. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so actually this first assignment convinced you that you didn't want to do that. I did not want to be a, a news photographer. That I did not have the stomach for that. Right, yeah. right. Well, I'd also just... Be, I also sort of realized that uh, I'm a pretty gregarious person and I like the idea of working with a group to an end as opposed to working individually, which is really a photographer's job. You know, so. Although you obviously like both. Yeah, because I continue to photograph yeah. through my career and, and that's what I'm really doing now. So Yeah, well, we'll, we'll I've return. been lucky to have the balance. Yeah. I, actually, when I came to campus this afternoon, or late morning, early afternoon, I, Jim was already here, and he was taking pictures. I saw him <laughs> taking photographs in the quad. I thought, oh, my. Um, I can't help it. <laughs> <laughs> How did you come to direct this particular episode of The Sopranos? And that's the first part of the question. But the other is a kind of, I'm really curious as to how you actually do this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what was your biggest challenge in directing an episode that both recounts full-fledged stories that are ongoing as well as, you know, new information and a new storyline. So coming in to something that's been long running. So how did you come to it and what were the challenges for you? Uh, Well, David Chase, who was the creator of the show, and I worked on a show called Northern Exposure. Hmm. And I started that show as... Yes, we watched it. Someone knows it. That's good. A bit older, maybe. (laughs) We're all older. We're all old, believe me. Uh, anyway, that was a, that's a whole other thing, because that was just a great show to work on. And I was the cinematographer on it, and then that's where I got my first chance to direct. Mm-hmm. And so then I left uh, and started working as a visiting director on various shows, but I would always come back. And uh, that's where I met David, and then he went on some years later to do The Sopranos. So we had worked together. We had a working relationship. So he called me to do one. So uh, I think the issue for all visiting directors is you're coming into, uh, you're, the, you're the one who's crashing the dinner party, you know? Mm-hmm. And particularly in this situation, you have a show that's in its fourth season. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So things are pretty well set. And it's an exclusive dinner party because it's an incredibly mm-hmm. successful show. 
so as a visiting director, you sort of have to spend a lot of your prep. You get, I don't know, two weeks or so to prep the show, kind of figuring out the political landscape, you know. Uh, and you come in, and uh, in a situation like this, you watch as many shows. I watched every show. I mean, I was a fan of the show, so it wasn't like I had to catch up. Uh, but it's the 51st episode that you're directing. Yeah, so, so it's a lot of TV. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and there's a very set style to the show. Uh, photographically, it's a very staid style. It's, it's relatively static. It's relatively uh, traditional coverage. You know, a wide shot and then singles or over-the-shoulder singles and whatnot. Uh, and I came, I think because I was a cinematographer, I came from a place personally of really liking the moving camera. Mm-hmm. So I, to a degree, I had to adjust my style of how I would shoot a scene and sort of fit it into their style. But you can see that the camera is drifting a lot. So I sort of brought that, and they seemed to enjoy They seemed to like it, so I was okay with that. So. Yeah, so... There are some really stunning scenes um, and some that don't look like the rest of the series. I mean, there seems to be a certain sensibility at work. But I want to start with, you know, the scene uh, of Polly's brutal murder mm. of, uh, of one of his mother's friends, who he's taken a dislike to from the very beginning. Um, and it's a shocking sequence, and I, I wonder how it came to you and how you decided to render it. You know, it's interesting. When I first read it, mm. it was like, Whoa, <laughs> right? I mean, and then Tony Sirico, who played Paulie, came and he said, David has me killing this woman. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I said, are you uncomfortable with it? Do you want to maybe, should we talk to David? And he said, oh, no. David wants me to kill. I'm going to kill her. Just like that. Like, okay. <laughs> so we said, well, let's run with that. You know, so we lit it much darker. Mm-hmm. It's very noirish, and you know, you don't see uh, in the eyes. It's all top lit. Uh, for me, the most brutal shot is this, the low angle looking up on him when he's killed. Yes, I mean when he pulls a pillow off, that's no joy either. But but that intensity, uh, I I thought was really shocking. To tee that up, I, I made a little comic in the beginning. Uh, when he's under the bed mm-hmm. and he sees her come in in those, you know, slippers with the socks on and you feel, see the nightdress and then you, you cut back to him and he's got that sort of big reaction to it. Because I wanted to sort of, I didn't want to telegraph where we were going. So we tried as best we could so to make that scene in the bedroom start off. There's an underlying sense of tension to it. Right. But I'm trying to keep away from where we're going. Right. So, uh, you know, when you get down in the hall and the physicality of it all. Well, that's what that makes much it more, more shocking. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Well, you know, of course, the main story about mothering in this episode involves Carmela, and it was really pretty striking to me, because of course I was a fan of the series, watched it all the time, I remember this episode, but Mm. 
watching it again after not seeing the show for you know 15 years or so, um, I remembered this episode and Carmela's desperate longing for um, a, you know a potential love interest in Furio and how awkward it is and how. Um, you know, her intensity of feeling as folk... I mean, there's a lot of other activity going on in this episode, but she seems to be at the center of it. Um, Many critics have claimed that this is the first episode that gives us our first real encounter with Carmela's inner life. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how you give an inner life to a character who's been mostly framed as a mother and a bystander. Like, what is different here? Because I think... She is the kind of emotional uh, center of this episode. Mm-hmm. Well, you're lucky enough to have Edie Falco. Well, there's that. <laughs> and uh, I think uh, a smart director uh, just gives the room for an actor like that. You know, there are certain actors that just embody a character. You know, uh, and she... She was Carmela. Right. And she'd had three years of understanding. At one point she said to me, oh, this poor woman. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you just let her do her work. Give her the space to do her work. I will say there are a lot of scenes where she's alone Mm -hmm. in a space uh, and revealing different emotions and and I tried to for instance the scene in the bathroom right. we played it all in a wide shot you didn't need to go close there and she's all in this kind of negative monotonal space she's sort of in the same tones it's 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 a drab world that she's in when she's crying in the bathroom and that was you know we were looking for that yeah know? i take what you say about you know if a good director a great director who has wonderful people actors and a great script to work with that you you let it the professionals you let people do what they do but you also said a little earlier that you know when you come on to a long running and very successful show you ha- kind of had to deal with the politics or suss out figure mm-hmm. out what the po- could you say more about that like the politics of the set or the you know, the ensemble cast and how it works or was this a really well-oiled machine well there are a lot of personalities and when you have a a show that's been on and so successful for four seasons you know people's personalities grow a little bit <laughs> <laughs> uh I found that the leads, because they were really solid, trained... Act- right. I mean, remember, both of them were, were really solid character actors before right. this. They were not the leads, you know. Uh, the first thing I ever saw Edie Falco in was an off-Broadway play called Sideman, and she was, you know, the third lead in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the other characters were less uh, experienced, so they required a little bit more hands-on, but they felt they knew what they were doing. So you have to sort of balance letting them, mm-hmm. you know, enjoy their fame and believe in their ability, but also you have to guide them. I, I think uh, the car- actor that played Paulie was that way. He would literally, uh, he would practice his lines in the, in the mirror at home. So he would imagine what the other person was saying. So, you know, they say acting is about reacting. But he came in locked into what he imagined the scene was. And so my work there 
was to loosen them up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, because actually the woman playing Min was a Broadway actress. She, yes, you could. Yeah, she had some chops to her, you know. And uh, I think maybe it would help because it put him back on his heels yeah. a little bit. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, I particularly struck it, I'm sure others were who were watching this tonight, uh, by the sequence when Carmela returns to Fur- Furio's vacant house. And the shot starts with a close-up of Carmela outside the window, but as the camera tracks back through the empty rooms, she shrinks, kind of boxed into the background, and the empty rooms you know, are very expressive of the void that she's... I mean, it's a very... It's not conveying a lot of information beyond her feelings about this new situation. So this, to me, watching it, knowing that your work as a photographer, it seemed very much a photographic sensibility. Can you say more here in your approach to directing as a photographer, as someone who's interested? Uh, sure. I mean, I have to say I'm very proud of that shot. I love Cause that. Because it, it just told a story without exactly. dialogue. Yeah. It really told a story. And, and she first, she looks in... And then she just leans against the window. It's like my favorite beat, yeah. you know? And we just keep pulling back. And, you know, we're showing her isolation. It just, it worked very well for me. Uh, you know, I came from being a cinematographer. So uh, I feel very comfortable of, of how putting things in frames, how you use the space and the, the frame and the movement to... Uh, elevate the storytelling. So uh, I always approach a scene that way, you know. So I sort of approach what's on the page. And then I, I also, uh, I do a shot list. Mm-hmm. So I have very specific shots. And they're very specific moves and whatnot. And then I kind of throw that out. And you see when you get the actors up and running, what's going to work there. But I think that the camera is another character. Mm-hmm. you know and everything I've ever done and it's the character that's involved with the scene but also telling you the scene showing you the scene I should say yeah so yeah well it was this incredibly cinematic moment but as you said without any dialogue without any expression um, telling us everything we know, need to know about how she feels right um, so you've worked in photography and in film and television, but also across various genre, genres, including you know dramedy, drama and comedy. So how did that um, experience with different genres um, serve you here? I'm falling apart, sorry. Well, that's not a generic question. <laughs> that we'd have to talk about horror then. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. So how did you work? How across did I- genres, because even in this episode... I mean, it's, you know, it plays across a number of different moods, right? Mm-hmm. It's, not, it's not on one beat. It, um, so there's lots of, there's moments, you know, comedic moments, moments that aren't comedic at all, but could end in tragedy, or I don't know. I wonder if you just talk about your work across genre and working mm-hmm. in genre. And I know you have a great interest from your earliest days studying American cinema. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, well, I have to say, I think The Sopranos was, you know, was was a a dark comedy. I think it was always that way. And 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 David Chase and the writers' balance of comedy and drama within the same breath, uh, I always found exquisite. You know, uh, and the fact that I'd worked in both genres, uh, 
I, I always feel like whether you're doing comedy or you're doing drama, what's important is uh, maintaining a reality. So, for instance, the, the golf course scene mm-hmm. where little Carmine is talking like he's right out of the Bowery Boys, you know, everything he says is a malaprop. You know, it's very funny. But what's underlying it, what's going on in that scene is the beginning of Tony's demise, really. You know, so as long as I felt I could keep it in a real world, uh, the scene with the dinner rolls, you know. Yeah. Yes. Everybody's seen someone do that. You right. Know? I haven't see, quite seen him taking all the sweet and low. Yeah. And the- well, maybe we went an inch far, but <laughs> that's why you laughed. Yeah. Uh, but there Although still was a reality who would it. do that. So, you hmm? know, I have relatives who would have done that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So I think for me, it, it, it's what I love to do. I love to do uh, both those things. You know, a lot of the shows, Ugly Betty, Joan of Arcadia, they were all these dramedies, you know, mm-hmm. so. Well, there's so many references to film and literature in this particular episode. Obviously, The Sopranos, it's, <clears throat> you know, constant film references, gangster film references, classic film references. Um, but let's focus first on the literary references um, from from the children's story um, Eloise at the Plaza Hotel, but the the bigger thing is the queer readings of Billy Budd or Death in Venice and Leslie Fieldler, <laughs> and I was wondering why have Carmela react to this particular cluster of literary text? I know you didn't write it, but you must have thought, you know, it, it's it's situating her in this, and it's played both as drama and as comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, right. Um, what you make of all that? Well, I mean, was I it think the, the whole run about homosexuality through mm-hmm. this episode, you know, with Mr. Wiggler, you know, then <laughs> the next time you see him, he's giving him death in Venice, you know, the invisible Mr. Wiggler, and we yeah. imagine who he is, you yeah. know. Uh, I'm not sure you could tell that story now. I, you know, I think uh, with the gay jokes and whatnot. But... I think it worked on a lot of levels. I think there was a reality that in Carmela and Tony's world, growing up when they grew up in the late 50s, early 60s, that was unheard of. That was never in public. But I think that her reaction in that specific moment in that scene is because she's coming off of the news about Furio. Of course. Of course. So. And he's the handsome, you know. Yeah. Against the evil. Exactly. And, you know, the look that she gives Tony when he takes the scone, you know, just carries over into this scene. Uh, And I think she just gets in the weeds there. Hmm. You know, I think that... But it seems that the joke is on Carmela, really. It's setting her up as a kind of... She's a rube. I mean, she's, she's New Jersey. She doesn't, you know, all of these, you know... Well, she was wrong. Does it, that critic is wrong. She's wrong. Well, you know, she just I mean, gets it gets worse and gets worse because she has. She's but it's showing a world, her ignorance. It's a, yeah. It's in a way, it's suggesting her ignorance. But even you know, um, the other characters seem to know what, how they're supposed to read these texts. But I was really struck by it with you know this. You know, everything is gay these days, and it's a little it reminded me of so contemporary as The Sopranos reminds me a lot of our own time now. Um, right. Yeah. 
but um, you know the whole critical race theory or everything. You know exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, she's you know she's naive to all that, yeah. you know, and but I also think the dynamic, the subtext of that is that her daughter, who's now calling her mother, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and her daughter's friends are all making her look foolish, you know, and she can't back off from that. She's na- the dynamic between mother and daughter is shifting at in this very moment, you know, and. Uh, I think her anger is coming from that disconnect. And, 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 and we can talk more about this, but obviously a jealousy that Meadow has a future that she can never have. Right. Or even the moment when she says, well, you'll be back, you'll need money in a week. And, you know, she has to stop herself, well, you'll need money in a week, and this is the world that you've, you, you've chosen. Um, well, but, also it's coming off her saying, maybe I should go to Montclair State exactly. and drop out like you. I mean, that is a really hurtful Right, you know, right. Remark, uh, but it's you know class difference and 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 taste level and um, all of that, which I, I want to talk a little bit more in a minute. But it strikes me that, as I said, Sopranos, and you know this, I, Goodfellas. You know, half the what, how many members of the cast of Goodfellas are in the Sopranos, mm-hmm. and 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 the Godfather is constantly evoked from the very beginning. But in this episode that focuses on Carmela's pain and lack of and tensions in mother-daughter relationships. We move into, like, the woman's film. And um, I kept thinking, you know, in the episode itself, um, there's references from classical women's films or films focused on, thought to be you know, strong, strong women characters. So Meadows calls her mother Mrs. Danvers, who the villain of Hitchcock's Rebecca in uh, this sequence. And later, at the very end, Carmela's in bed, and she's watching How to Marry a Million- Millionaire from 1953, the comedy starring Mary- Marilyn Monroe, Lauren Bacall, and Betty Grable. But, you know, this kind of situation... What do you make of this appeal to classical women's films in this episode? Well, I think the films themselves are reflections of the, the struggle that Carmela and her daughter are going through. You know, but I also think as I thought more about it, like mm-hmm. in the in the in the scene at the plaza where she pulls out the white gloves, right. where the hell did Carmela learn about white gloves? Because she watched a movie, right? You know, and then I started to say, okay, so my backstory is her whole dream of life is from those movies. Mm-hmm. You know, How to Marry a Millionaire. These are women that have a power over men that can define their own life and and she had that dream of that and now it's clearly evident that that's not the case at all you know that she's been left by the wayside you know so. Well, it's, that's why it seems like Meadow has all these opportunities and she is so hurt and and um, sad that Furio is gone and any kind of fantasy she might have entertained about maybe a different life which of course is absurd Right. And rendered in the scene where you know Furio looks like he's going to push Tony into the blades. Mm-hmm. He's already been uh, bothered by Tony calling her a moody bitch mm-hmm. and not showing adequate respect. And and I love the, all the dialogue on the date. You know they're going to go to color tile or whatever. Have um, you thought about flooring <laughs> and break that romantic moment? <laughs> and also they just played it great. You know. Yeah. You know a lot of. Uh, of comedy and scenes not 
only comes from the words, but becomes comes from the spaces between the words. So mm-hmm. they play that awkward moment, and then she breaks it with that line. It's well done. And also, I think that when when Meadow calls her Mrs. Danvers, and Carmela reacts to it, to me, that's like, oh, did they watch that movie together? Yeah. You know, did they share that moment? Because it's not like Carmela doesn't know no, what she's talking about. Exactly. That's you right. know, so I think all everything in her life is going away now. The fantasy relationship with Furio, the 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 little girl that she took to the plaza on her birthday, uh, and she's in a vacuum. Her, right. You know, she's stuck. She's completely stuck, and any possibility that she had that would take her out of this relatively toxic relationship with her husband is gone. There's no possibility now. So it's... Well, let's turn to the... I was really struck by uh, the ending of the episode where Tony's trying to understand what's going on. And in, at least here, he's so clueless throughout, you know, that it, and he can agree with Meadow. He can... Meadow gets it. She figures it out. She puts two and two together. Oh, she's the parent in that Right, scene, she's the one I that think. knows. But, yeah. you know, he's like, well, change of life, you know, and all yeah, of this. But... Um, but I want to just talk about that final sequence with Carmela in bed, and he's saying, you know, Carm, you did it. This, she, you know, Meadows is a wonderful, beautiful. We've already heard this from the roommate's mother, you know, mm-hmm. her daughter. And at that point, she she takes it in that way, like you know, oh, what a reflection on me. She's quite proud. Exactly, I think, she's that, proud of it at there. that moment. But, you know, after the other dinner sequence where she feels that she's really being belittled by She's these, humiliated. Yeah. yeah. And then here at the end, I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how you chose to shoot that. Because I think it's really, really moving and effective. Um, and as I said to you, again, as someone who watched a lot of melodramas and women's films, um, it reminded me of like a kind of Stella Dallas mm-hmm. in reverse. It's a movie from 1937 where the working class mother has to give her daughter up to the working class, uh, upper class and she herself can't be part of this world, but she's proud of it, that she's enabled this kind of class mobility for her daughter. Whereas here, it's like um, she's getting this praise from Tony about how, what a great mother and how she raised this wonderful person, but all she can just say is you know, deadpan and staring blankly ahead like, yes... Um, and not proud of it. In fact, it's very much focused on her own lack of mobility, the, the impossibility of any movement forward. So I just wanted you to talk a little bit about how you chose to shoot that, because it's very effective. Uh, yeah, she is so caught in her own uh, wasteland mm-hmm. that she can't take any credit. She All she sees with Meadow... Because Tony calls her a fine young woman. So it's not even a girl anymore, you know? And she, all she sees is loss. And she's lost Furio, she's lost her daughter, uh, and she's alone. Yeah. And so I chose to play it that they have a little sweet moment when she says, do I have a fever? And he lays back and he says, maybe a little. And then she turns off the TV and she rolls away from him. Mm-hmm. And I staged it so even what he's saying, you can't really see him. He's hidden behind her shoulder. Because for me, it's all about, and I do this because 
the camera moves in on her. And it's all about her isolation there. Mm-hmm. That, that she can't even, she couldn't possibly explain to Tony how that really makes her feel. I'm not sure she really understands all her feelings at that point. I think she's really locked. Uh, and then the eurythmic song that comes up, which is basically about someone stuck on the ground right. watching a little bird fly away, you know, just that's her predicament. Right. You know? So. I wanted to ask one last question before we might open up for audience questions, but in this episode, as in others, the Sopranos plays with and even mocks the values of you know, urban and suburban sophisticates, including academics, pro- professionals, intellectuals, intellectuals. And many scholars have said, arguably, this is the demographic for this series, mm-hmm. is a kind of high-quality prestige TV. Um, so what do you make of the episode's take on this kind of play between high and low culture, high culture and, you know, Death in Venice, Billy Budd, and this, and the, I think while there is this mocking of Carmela for being so provincial and just completely out of it, and a woman of her time, even a throwback, you know, mm-hmm. um, very, very, you know, How to Marry a Millionaire in 1953, if you even watch it, it's very different than things you'd see at the end of the 50s. Yeah. Um, it's so coming out of the war time. Um, but there, I think that Meadow and her um, roommates are also mocked in a way too. And what some scholars have said is that the series really counts on this audience, that it also says, you know, they know the right answers, but they're not in any way really connected or connected to these texts. So they know the right reading of Billy, but oh, I think I heard somewhere, yes, mm-hmm. or, right? Um, so how do you think it plays out? Because this is a series, it is, you know, high and low culture. It is this c- clash of cultures and times. And mm-hmm. So I wondered if you had some thoughts about that. Well, on, the, on one hand, I feel like, you know, nobody goes unscathed in The Sopranos. You know, whether it's gangsters or academicians or children or adults, they make fun of yeah. everybody. It's like an equal opportunity employer. Right. Uh, But I also think that that in that dinner scene, those kids have no reality. They're just spewing back what they've been told or what they've read. And the arc for Meadow is from that scene to the scene where she talks to her brother to the scene where she talks to her dad. Now she's starting to have real-life interpretations, real-life moments. So it's sort of the beginning. You see an arc in her growth there. That's right. That's right. And I think making fun of them... I mean, in that scene, clearly, Carmela's lack of knowledge is the the big joke. And they're sort of... But it doesn't bother Tony. He doesn't know either, but he just... He's just oblivious. He, all he wants, all he, he knows in this scene it. is Carmela is pissed off. <laughs> yeah. And he's just trying to hold the peace here. Yeah. He doesn't understand why, but like he said in the car, she's a moody bitch, and I yeah. don't understand this woman that I've been with for however long. Uh, but I think the second level is that they're making fun of these students who think they know everything mm-hmm. and, and only know, you know what they've read right. at this point. Right. You know? 
And the, the roommate that Tony thinks is gay, and then is some, I mean, to me, I just realized what I was watching today, I think this actor played the whole scene like he was stoned every time you saw him. <laughs> <laughs> just like so kind of yeah, yeah. listless. Yeah, no, that, that the conversation is, and I think the, it's more that, you know, Tony's the whole gay, or it doesn't affect him, where Carmela's, you know, somehow this, her sensibility is really rattled, but the rest of, there's a kind of smugness, but you're right, they're, they're college kids, and, and here class plays out in a different way, because they're this, you know, coming from these very wealthy families, very accomplished, a world away from anything that Tony and... Oh, I think those kids couldn't... I mean, it seems to me that they must have a sense of who Tony Soprano is because so, they're so nervous right. when they come in, but they don't have a clue what that lifestyle is right. at all. And they're, you know, she's locked in her you know, house in the Pyrenees. And, right. You know, so <laughs> right. They just have no idea. Well, I'm certain that members of the audience have questions. I hope you do. You mentioned that you and your mom used to watch movies late at night, and I'm, I'm a late-night owl myself. Which, which was your favorite movie that you watched with your mother? Did you have a favorite? Well, it's going back a very long time. Uh, but uh, this was in the late 50s, I guess. Uh, and so... Uh, my mother loved Busby Berkeley musicals. So like The Gold Diggers in 1933 was a big favorite movie of ours. And uh, so I, as much as I liked that, I also loved Guadalcanal Diary, like all the black and white war movies, you know, for a seven-year-old boy. Uh, but it was always mostly musicals or melodramas. So... I got a great balance. What's not to love? I mean, right? Yeah. Actually, my favorite movie, we've talked about this, but, and I think I probably saw it way back then, is a movie called Sullivan's Travels. Uh, and that actually was a movie that made me want to make movies. Because I don't know if you know the movie, but at the end of it, it's about a filmmaker who, who makes uh, comedies, and he decides he needs to make a really serious movie. So... He goes out on the road. He's going to make a documentary about real people. And he goes through these series of mishaps and uh, ends up in jail. And, uh, well, it's a spoiler, but I'm going to do it anyway. So, At the end of the movie, he's in jail. And it's a miserable existence. And he sees all these people working on road gangs. It's terrible. But at night, they show a movie. And they show a cartoon and it's uproariously funny. And every guy in this audience forgets where they are. And they're all laughing and enjoying. And he has this epiphany like, oh, yeah, what I've been doing all these years is important. That's what I want to do. So. We're hoping next year to do a whole series on revisiting the classics. And I'd love to have Jim come back and we'll, we'll talk about... Uh, Sullivan's Travels. I'd love that. It'd be great. Thank you. There's the scene where Tony is within inches of being murdered, uh, which is so sudden and so quickly moved on from, even though it's such a big deal. And I was just wondering if you had any comments on putting together that scene or um, how you felt about the composition of that particular plot point. 
Thank you. Are you talking about the airport? Yeah, yeah in the propeller. Yeah. So it was interesting because uh, when we looked at the helicopter and that rotor in the back, you couldn't see anything in a real helicopter because there's no markings on it. So, so we actually had to manufacture the tail of the plane, of the, of the helicopter, so we could uh, paint on the rotor and then move it at a different speed. And also we had to make sure that it wasn't completely in sync with 24 frames a second because then it would disappear completely. Uh, so we had to manufacture all that moment. And it was a little bit trial and error because we, we just assumed we were going to do it with a real helicopter. And then we, as we saw, we realized we couldn't do that. Uh, I think it's a huge moment in the episode, you know? And I think it's a piv- the pivotal moment, right? Because it sends Fiorio back to Italy and it starts the, you know, the downfall of Carmela's dreams, you know? And uh, I thought that uh, Gandolfini was brilliant. Mm-hmm. Played a brilliant drunk yeah. in that scene. Completely bewildered, you know. I didn't quite understand, though, urinating into the blades. I mean, you think, I, I thought they were getting away from the barfing guy, that you wouldn't want the barfing into the... <laughs> just There might be a little physics here that we could question. <laughs> it just didn't seem like a well, wise no, for other reasons. No, it's that way. They've got their back to... <laughs> okay, okay. I sorry. can rationalize anything. Okay. It worked <laughs> in the shot. It worked. <laughs> Thank you so much for directing a fantastic episode. My friends and I were at Italian dinner earlier, so we were celebrating Perfect. this occasion. Yeah. Um, Did you we take were, the rolls when you left? There were. <laughs> we should have taken the rolls. Um, we were trying to nail down what makes The Sopranos so special, and so many shows are trying to emulate this. This was such a groundbreaking series. We couldn't really figure it out. I'm curious, what do you think in your, you know, it's so probably not an easy thing to nail down, but what makes The Sopranos so special that show, so many shows are trying to emulate, in your opinion? Well, I think it was the first, so there's something to be said for that. And it was certainly the first time that anyone took a look at that cross-section of America, the, the uh, American gangster, and humanized him to the degree that he had the same problems that any suburban father with a family of four would encounter, you know? The anxiety that he has above and beyond from his work is what sends him to a shrink, you know? It gives him panic attacks. So I think it was one of the first times that it approached a very set uh, uh, style of... I can't think of the word I'm thinking of. A very set uh, type of uh, storytelling... Or, or world, the gangster world, and said, put it in, in suburban terms. I, I think that was a huge thing for it. Yeah. And long-running, and a television series, so it could keep... Well, that's one of the brilliant things about a series. You can head in one direction, and if it isn't quite working, you can mm-hmm. go somewhere else because you got the time to tell those stories. Yeah, so. Okay, please join me in thanking Jim Hamilton for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, 
Visit us online at uctv.tv.